From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On the show today, Courtney Bryan was one of two New Orleanians recently awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. The Tulane music professor and composer joins us for more on her musical influences and compositions and how she plans to use her grant to give back to New Orleans. Plus, with the primary elections just two days away, State House reporter Molly Ryan and the Times-Picayune, the Advocate's editorial director and columnist Stephanie Grace will join us with everything we need to know. But first... Yesterday, the New Orleans Police Department's interim superintendent, Ann Kirkpatrick, underwent the first steps towards becoming the permanent NOPD chief. It was during her confirmation hearings that she appeared before the New Orleans City Council Governmental Affairs Committee. She discussed her qualifications, recruitment plans, crime-fighting strategies, among other topics. Joining us is Missy Wilkinson, reporter for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate, who was at those hearings and joins us for more. Hello, Missy. Hello. Thanks for being here. So this hearing was the first of its kind after voters approved this new process in 2022. Can you remind us of what happened to change how these appointments are now done? Sure. Um, So in the past, every other New Orleans police department chief has been picked by the mayor um, with really no other no one else, just the mayor says, this is going to be my chief. This is who I want. And that's the end of the story. However, in December 20. 2022, New Orleans voters approved a charter change, and it requires confirmation from city council members for the chief role. So basically, the mayor says, here's my pick, but we want still the whole city council to sign off on it. And there's public input that can be given throughout that process, too. Um, After mounting a nationwide search, um, Cantrell found Ann Kirkpatrick and presented her to city council members as her selection, um, and she was sworn in last month. So that's on an interim basis. And on Wednesday at a hearing in city council chambers, Kirkpatrick made the case to the public and to city council members about why she should be confirmed as chief and keep the gig permanently. So tell us what happened at the meeting. What was discussed? It was a pretty much a six point agenda and with room for questionings. And, and there she addressed her recruitment and retention plan, her deployment plan, organizational restructuring in the department, consent decree, compliance, crime fighting strategy, civilianization, and community engagement. Um, so the topics really ran the gamut beyond that too. Um, council members were curious about her sensitivity to New Orleans culture, which is unique um, as an outsider. Um, They also asked her about her history, her most recent history as a chief with the Oakland Police Department. Um, That department is also under federal oversight. And during her tenure there, um, it did experience some backsliding and compliance. Um, Kirkpatrick in her defense said that the department in Oakland did fall out of compliance because she was retooling its interior investigations process to address underlying areas of improvement. So she basically said, you know, we, we weren't really doing these investigations because we were retraining officers. And so therefore we fell out of compliance, but it was for the greater good. It was basically to move the department forward. Mm-hmm. Anything surprising come up during the uh, confirmation hearing? Yes, I was surprised by the level of passion. And um, even in some instances, uh, vitriol that public commenters brought to the meeting. Um, And I believe that is because there is such widespread support for Michelle Woodfork um, as who was interim chief, you know, who is from New Orleans, who has more than 30 years of history with the department and is very beloved by the community. And there's some distrust of Kirkpatrick. Uh, One commenter said she was 
from the devil. And another said she can't spell Chapatulis and she doesn't know where her shoes go. Um, so I think other people were just dismayed to see a black woman from New Orleans who has arguably succeeded in a very difficult job. You know, crime has gone down while Woodfork has been chief. Um, and then she was passed over for a white woman from out of state. I was also interested to learn why there's been some ambiguity about what Michelle Woodfork's role is going to be with the New Orleans Police Department. Um, people have said that she's gonna maintain a leadership role without clarifying exactly what that will be. And apparently that's because her role has not yet been created. Uh, Council member Freddie King said that he will support the creation of a new deputy chief role for Woodwork, which would put her second in command. Um, it would make her salary $188,000 um, in the event that Kirkpatrick is confirmed as chief. Um, but that role doesn't exist yet, and it will take some time, at least six months, um, an effort from city council and the Department of Civil Services to create it. So what happens next? More confirmation hearings? And does it seem like Kirkpatrick's on her way to be the full-time chief? It, it does, uh, based on today's hearing, look as if Kirkpatrick is on her way for confirmation. The motion um, to present her to the full council for a vote for confirmation did pass uh, four to one with council member Eugene Green being the sole nay. Um, so it looks like she has at least four votes, which would put her over the top. And uh, that vote happens October 19th. It's also going to be open um, to the public and for public comment. Missy Wilkinson, reporter for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Louisiana's primary elections are just two days away. And here on Louisiana Considered, we've been closely following the governor's race as well as other campaigns for state and local offices. Here to give us all the last-minute information you need to know leading up to October 14th are Stephanie Grace, editorial director and columnist for the Times-Picayune and the Advocate, and Molly Ryan, our Statehouse reporter. Thank you both for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yes, good to be here. Stephanie, I'll start with you. Early voting concluded last weekend, and while we don't know who got those votes, did we learn anything? Uh, we did. We learned something that's probably not so surprising, and that is that interest is not super high This in this election, even though it's a very big election, we're going to be choosing a new governor. Um, turnout in early voting has been going up and up and up for big elections, mm -hmm. really, since it, it became kind of a popular thing. And it it was down a little this year. One thing we did learn is that the, the numbers seem to be skewing more Republican than Democrat in early voting. So that may tell us more of what will happen on Saturday. It may not, but that's worth keeping in mind. Yeah, the number of voters who voted in the early voting period this year is down by about 40,000 from the last gubernatorial early voting period in 2019. And as Stephanie said, uh, a lot of the drops are in early voting turnout are among Black Louisianans and Democrats. So it's skewing heavy, heavily Republican, mm -hmm. which could favor the front runner in the race, Jeff Landry. Also interesting, I'll note quickly that the total number of registered voters is also down from 2019. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that surprised you uh, about the governor's race all up to this point? I have to say that, you know, the surprise to me is that we really had no surprises. Um, <laughs> Jeff Landry came in as the big front runner, as Molly said. He's still the front runner. Um, Sean Wilson, kind of in that number two spot, the the only major Democrat 
probably still there as as far as we know, as far as any of the polling we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always been talk that another Republican who might be more of a kind of mainstream business Republican as opposed to a very ideological MAGA Republican, which is what Jeff Landry is, might kind of make a run for it up the middle and could still happen. Getting late. I have to agree with Stephanie on that. Stephen Wagesback had climbed up in the polls a little bit over the last couple of weeks, but he is still far below Landry's numbers and even Wilson's numbers, who are the top two right now. So you both have been talking about Landry and his position. Could he win it outright this weekend? You know, it's really interesting that chairman of the Louisiana Republican Party, who is a Landry supporter, the Republican Party endorsed Landry very early, even before it knew which other Republicans were going to run, which was a very controversial move. Um, he put out something last week basically saying, yeah, he could win. And and that's so unusual because there have been other candidates who've been far ahead who, you know, were kind, kind of went for the win in the primary as opposed to getting into a runoff. They didn't really talk about it because if you talk about it, then you create the expectation that you might do it. And then if you fall short, it looks like, you know, you didn't do as well as you thought. And mm-hmm. that's a, you know, kind of psychologically not what you want to do. But the fact that some of his supporters are are talking about it is fascinating to me. Um, I've also seen him kind of make a few moves a little bit to the left, which is, again, what you do if you're a very conservative politician. You think you've got the right. You need to pick off some of those votes in the middle. Um, with Landry, one of the things he's done is he, he sent out an interesting mailer basically supporting Medicaid. And, of course, remember, he sued to get rid of Medicaid expansion as part of Obamacare. So that's um, an an interesting position for him to take. I I should add that the way that it ends this weekend is if any candidate gets 50% of the vote plus one. If you get a majority, there's no runoff. If if there's no candidate who gets a majority, then the top two go into the runoff. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty rare that somebody wins outright in the Mm -hmm. primary, especially not as an incumbent. Right. The last one would have been Bobby Jindal in um, 2007, but he was running as kind of something like an incumbent, you know, Mm -hmm. because Kathleen Blanco had, he had been in the runoff four years earlier. Kathleen Blanco was not running for re-election. He had, he had this sort of support that an incumbent usually has. Molly, besides the governor's race, what other races will you be keeping an eye on this weekend? There's a number of statewide races on the ballot this year. I think some other interesting ones include Secretary of State, where there's quite a few candidates. And most notably, the next Secretary of State will have to decide what kind of new voting system we implement as a state, because the legislature uh, passed a bill a few years ago that bans the system we currently have in place and requires a paper trail. I'm also going to be watching Attorney General race. It's a race that will shape Louisiana's relationship with the federal government and our politics on things like abortion and oil and gas and could dictate like how smoothly things go in state government, depending on who the governor is as well. And then there's some interesting local races, like one for Mandy Landry's house seat in New Orleans that's gotten a lot of attention Mm -hmm. because uh, Mandy Landry is this progressive fixture at the Capitol, but her opponent Uh, Madison O'Malley has received the endorsement of Governor John Bell Edwards. In the minute we have left, um, just uh, some information, thoughts about Steve Scalise receiving the GOP nomination for House Speaker. What what can you tell us about him? Yeah, he's a pretty conservative guy, and he's not really known for championing like one specific area of policy. 
this nomination is just a first round win. So he still has a tough task to garner enough support to win a full house vote. Um, he's been involved in some past controversy, controversy, Stephanie, you know about that, uh, but mm-hmm. he does tend to get along with Democrats and others who maybe don't think like him. Cedric Richmond is a great example of this. Uh, him and Steve Scalise are seem to be good friends. And Richmond was one of the first people by his side when Scalise was shot in 2017. Um, but like I said, it's still going to be a tough battle for Speaker. His opponent, uh, Ohio Republican Jim Jordan, had received the endorsement of former President Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he got the votes by a very slight margin over Jim Jordan coming out of the Republican caucus, but a number of Republicans are saying publicly they won't vote for him and at this point enough to stop it. So I don't know what's going to happen. And I I find it so interesting because Scalise to me has always been someone who has bridged the gap between the kind of mainstream Republicans and the real kind of blow everything up Republicans. You know, he's been, you know, he's managed that relationship maybe I thought better than McCarthy. Not well enough, it seems, perhaps. I have no idea what's going to happen. Stephanie Grace, editorial director and columnist for the Times, Picayune, The Advocate, and Molly Ryan, our State House reporter. Thank you both for joining us. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Last week, Tulane University announced that music professor, composer, and pianist Courtney Bryan received a prestigious MacArthur Genius Grant. But the New Orleans native wasn't the only one in the Crescent City selected for this honor. She was joined by Loyola University law professor and incarceration scholar Andrea Armstrong, whose online database of incarceration statistics has been modeled around the country. While Courtney still has time to figure out how exactly she'll spend her stipend, the musician and scholar who focuses on the combination of West African, Caribbean, and South American influences in her compositions has stated that she would like to give back to the New Orleans community in some capacity. Joining us to talk about the exciting honor and the work that's led her to this point is Courtney Bryan. Courtney, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. New Orleans has always been a place where music mixes. Old sounds meet and mingle with new sounds. Tell us about those musical influences in your life and your early exposure to them. Sure. I mean, growing up in New Orleans, it's just so much to be inspired by. So, I mean, there's all the music that I would just hear in the city, you know, all the different types of rich musical traditions we have. Um, But my earliest memories are from my church, um, St. Luke's Episcopal Church. And I remember like the hymns that we would do and Gregorian chant and the spirituals and all the different like styles that we would do. Um, we'd have a Baba Luther Gray come on special occasions through like the West African drumming. So my earliest memory was actually a mix of these different um, traditions all together. And I've been studying music since I was five. I studied um, piano and eventually I started studying like Western classical music. And then eventually I got into jazz uh, with the Louis Satchel Armstrong Summer Jazz Camp, which then led me to studying at NOCA. And um, and then throughout my life, I've just been studying, like always into different types of music that I went on to, uh, to study elsewhere. Mm-hmm. What's the first music that drew you, that really grabbed your attention? Um, I mean, the first music 
um, that I really think about was like hearing spirituals. Mm -hmm. And those have always resonated with me and they continue to. They're sort of always like the idea of the spirituals tends to be present in my uh, in my music. Um, but I remember spirituals really speaking to me from a young age. Yeah, I was just always open to everything. I mean, getting to hear, you know, brass bands in the city, marching bands as well, and getting to participate in marching band when I was in junior high at McMain. Um, those are like big influences. But yeah, it's just like in, in New Orleans, just to hear so much great music at all times everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a blessing to grow up with it. Uh-huh. Something I read about you is that you put different music genres in conversation with one another. Now, what, what does that mean? What does that sound like? Yeah, well, I would say when I was growing up, um, I was doing all these different traditions, but they were kind of, I would participate in the um, the Piano Institute that's sponsored by uh, Masno um, and the International Piano Institute that goes on every year. And so I was doing that. I studied with Dr. Daniel Wildbacker. I have so many great teachers if I start naming them, <laughs> but I, I was doing my classical piano thing. And I was doing my jazz thing over here. You know, the way things can kind of, I, I was, and what happened is later in, um, in grad school when I was at Columbia University, I was kind of making more of a conscious or intentional um, point to combine all of my influences into one voice. I think I had always done it just kind of naturally, but I was kind of more aware of like all of my different interests and not feeling like I couldn't just be my full self in every sort of setting. It's like I've always played in churches and I've always played in like clubs and also concert hall and, mm -hmm. and been in the university. And I was like, well, how can I blend all of these things together, all of my different interests? And that's what I feel like my recent work does now in a way that just feels very natural to me. Mm -hmm. What are some of the themes that you address in your compositions? Well, one um, one continuing thread throughout all my work since I was very young is my spirituality. I would say it's a theme in my work, but it's like the thread of my work. It's kind of like music is is my main communication, and and that's and I, I tend to work through my spiritual questions through music. And then there's other themes that are present. I tend to be influenced by different parts of Black history. I'm interested in. Um, different contemporary social and political issues in some of my work. And I'm, I tend to be inspired by like visual artists, like both of my sisters are visual artists and by poetry. Um, it could be anything. I'm, I'm inspired by a lot of things. Jazz is known for its improvisational moments. What, what's your experience with music improvisation? How do you explore that in your work? I've always improvised at the piano since I was young. I explored it more with all the different um, educational situations I've had and the musicians I've worked with. But I think a big influence on me was um, Clyde Kerr Jr. at NOCA and at the jazz camp. And another major influence during that time and going forward has been Kid Jordan, you know, who recently passed away. And when I think about Kid Jordan, like he's someone who really like, like he lived improvisation and he would talk about that too. Like everything is improvisation. Um, mm -hmm. And he was, ever since he was younger, he would like listen to the birds and play along with that. Or if he heard like a lawnmower, he could improvise with that. And so I think just like growing up around all these influences, that, that left a, a big impact. We're speaking with Tulane University music professor, composer, and pianist Courtney Bryan about her recently awarded MacArthur Genius Grant. Courtney, you've led music workshops across the country. Can you tell us a bit about those workshops and what you're trying to teach about music and composition, especially since you've mentioned all of these great New Orleans artists already? 
I've been thinking more recently in my own way of teaching. Um, I teach full-time at Tulane, but I also like to form workshops when I'm doing projects away, like when I'm working with an orchestra, like say when I worked, uh, I was a composer in residence with Jacksonville Symphony. And when I was working on a project for them, I used that time to, to develop a workshop, which was called Sounds of Your Neighborhood. So I went into the different schools in Jacksonville um, during my different visits to Jacksonville. It would start off with them just talking about sounds in their neighborhood and then them creating the sound, just using their voice and like body percussion or their desk. Mm -hmm. And then if they had instruments, then, you know, we could like try to translate that to the instruments. And the idea is like to start from sound and then create a piece. And then through that, you know, we talk about like different words like melody or form or all the things that you can learn that are kind of more music theory. The Sounds of Freedom Project includes like a piece I recently finished that will premiere in, on November 1st in New York. Um, but also with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, as I was the um, creative partner there for three years, um, I had a chance to work with young people in New Orleans on similar project like Sounds of Your Neighborhood, except we changed it to Sounds of Your Home because we were like right in the middle of the pandemic and everybody was indoors. We were meeting on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And so we did sound, we did projects similar to what I did in Jacksonville, but based on sounds of your home. And so I found that to be like a workshop that is really exciting and, and educational and just kind of fresh. It's always like experimental. And how did you find out that you had been selected? So they're really good at surprises, it seems. <laughs> they, um, I guess they had called me and I missed it, but they sent me an email and I knew it was from the MacArthur Foundation and they wanted me to weigh in on a candidate. And so I was really excited because I was like, maybe someone that I know is, you know, like a candidate for the MacArthur and it's such a big deal. So I called them when I was alone and I was um, going to weigh in on, find out who they were asking about. And I found out that it was me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was such a, it was such a wonderful surprise. And it took a little while for it to settle in. We were just talking and I was hearing facts and then towards the end of the conversation, it, it kind of hit me more on an emotional level. And I thought about what it meant to me as an artist, but also what it would mean to my family and to my community and just kind of the magnitude of, of this sort of blessing, you know, to come in my life. And so from there, you're supposed to keep it secret for like over a month. So, wow. <laughs> so that was another step, but it gave time to really think about, to really think about it and process the idea so that by the time the announcement came yesterday, you know, it was like, like ready to share it with the world. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your community. You've had some time to, to think about how you'll spend your stipend. What are your, some of your ideas so far? How, how might you involve the New Orleans community? Yeah, I have all these ideas going in my head. I mean, for one thing, the MacArthur um, affords like more time and space for creating. And so I'm trying to think how that can work. And then I have, like, as I mentioned, I have all these different educational ideas, but also I love curating. And I've had different experiences doing that. So I'm just trying to think kind of in brainstorm mode about once again, like bringing together different things I'm into between curating, educating and, and creating. And so I want to find things that like, you know, based in my hometown of New Orleans that I would like to explore further. And so I'm, I'm still in that, um, like, what, like, what does it mean or what will it be? But it's really exciting to have space to dream and, and just to think about what are the next steps and what do I really want to do? Courtney Bryan, a Tulane University professor, composer, and pianist who has received a MacArthur Genius Grant. Congratulations and thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Thanks to our guests, the Times-Picayune, the Advocate's editorial director and columnist, Stephanie Grace, reporter Missy Wilkinson, Statehouse reporter Molly Ryan, and Tulane professor of music and composer Courtney Bryan. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer, Aubrey Procell. Our engineer, Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's also available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.